0: Hello, friends and adventurers! Our podcast has been supported for months now by Misty Mountain Gaming, and they're now rewarding you, our listeners, with savings on all their fine DD products such as metal dice, stone dice, glass dice, miniatures, adventures, dice trays, and more. You can use the code TWINS10 T W I N S 10 that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, to save 10% on all purchases made in their online store at mistymountaingaming.com. Every code redeemed helps support Stephen and I, and encourages us to make more and better content for you. So be sure to use code TWINS10 whenever you're buying premium Dungeons & Dragons dice and gear from our good friends at mistymountaingaming.com. Okay, on with the show. and adventurers to another episode of bardic twinspiration it's me once again the DD wannabe my name is rob and i am joined as always or pretty much always it almost
1: invariably more the rule than the exception by my brother steven hello welcome back thank you for joining us again as we continue to plow our way through the one D &D playtest content
0: And guess what? We're almost done. This has been a journey. We had this schedule worked out where we were going to be releasing a episode a week. uh, And then life happened and the flu made its way through Steve's family. And I'm about to go on the road again. So... We're, we're squeezing this in hopefully finishing this up before they come
1: out with anything new if not please don't hate us i thought you were talking about before like they came out with new diseases or something that i could catch for a second there
0: no before the next playtest content is released that's morbid
1: we have every intention of making this the last episode that we record to cover this material which is pretty ambitious given the fact that there is still more than a third of the pages left to go <laughs> that's
0: right We've finally finished talking about the three expert classes presented in the playtest packet. We've gone through bars, we've gone through rogues, we've gone through rangers. Not necessarily in that order. We've gone through all of the feats presented, and now all that's left is the glossary. But this, this, I think, is some of the most important stuff to talk about, at least from the Dungeon Master's perspective, because now we're talking about rules and definitions, not player classes and player options. This might be a little more interesting to me than it is to all of our listeners as a dungeon master, and I might just enjoy this kind of stuff. Steve enjoys his numbers. I enjoy my rules, but I'm still excited
1: to talk about it. I enjoy my numbers and I enjoy my feats, and we've had plenty of those to go over, but now it's time to talk definitions. That's what the glossary is for, right? clarifying everything so that the rest of the stuff you read makes sense maybe we should have done this first think things to <laughs> consider for the next round of playtest test material perhaps
0: we were just so excited to talk about the classes though
1: now we made it through 23 pages across five other episodes good grief yeah it took us five episodes to go through the first 24 pages Our chatty little Cathy's we're gonna try to go through the last 14 in this one episode now to get this out of the way The first six pages that we have not yet covered are entirely the three new spell lists that player characters will have access to, those being the arcane, divine, and primal spell lists. Ironically, while we are going to spell a lot of things out in the glossary, we are going to gloss over the spell list and only give you the highlights.
0: (laughs) Anything that you are hearing with regard to the spells, thanks Steve for if you enjoy it. Because I was in favor of skipping over them entirely. Just because <laughs> I know we get into the minutia, but this is some minutiae.
1: There is a lot that could be covered here. But there's not a lot that has changed, and I just don't feel like we would be using our time well to really dig into these spell lists. They're here, available for your perusal if you want to give them a look. The one thing that I do want to mention before we skip on to the glossary is that we gave Wizards of the Coast a lot of grief in our magic episodes for how many things were categorized as evocations. Yeah. And it seems like the design team is taking this opportunity to go back through and correct some of those mistakes, for which I am personally very grateful. No doubt in direct response
0: to the complete hosing that we gave them about it. <laughs> I'm sure Watsi listens to our podcast. Nevertheless, they have shuffled around some spells, to different spell lists, As you're going through them, I invite you to make a special note of where the asterisks are, because they typically denote a change in spell
1: school, and for the most part, for the better. Uh, As Rob mentioned several episodes ago, the Thunderwave spell was changed to Transmutation, meaning that even though bards don't normally get access to evocation spells, they can still get thunder wave and also all healing spells that were traditionally listed as evocation in fifth edition have now been recategorized into the abjuration spell school while this is not my first choice for where healing spells should have ended up <coughs> necromancy. <coughs> necromancy. yes i probably would have classified them as necromancy but i think that abjuration would probably have been my second choice since it is about warding yourself and recovering things yeah same i still graciously accept the recategorization
0: right it's like it's compromise it, you don't nobody gets everything
1: they want out of it <laughs> what is it that calvin hobbs said a good compromise leaves everyone angry
0: something close to that if not
1: that exactly I guess the other thing is we do see certain
0: spells omitted. I think the thing that we were talking about before was Eldritch Blast not being in the Arcane Cantrips list. Correct. So surely that's not gone away. If we didn't mention it before, maybe it was on or off the air. I can't remember. I edit so much of this stuff. Maybe we're going to see that show up as a Warlock class feature instead of a spell that can be picked up by anyone, which would make sense with the way that they're doing these spell lists and making them accessible to more classes. Having something that is so intrinsically tied to a single class be part of
1: the class. True. Although they did leave Hunter's Mark as a primal spell and just gave special modifications to the rangers, we'll see how they give it the treatment. If they continue to go in order, then the mages might be the next playtest packet that we are presented with, and I really hope it is because that is the one that I have the most questions about. All right. Spell talk done? Rules time? Definitions time? Yes, let us move on to the glossary, the home stretch of this playtest packet. I am both ready to start this and to be done with it, so let's get going. (laughs)
0: All right, we're not going to go quite line by line like we have through some of this other stuff because a lot of what's coming up here is very familiar to people who have played 5th edition. Maybe a word has changed or a phrase has changed, but a rule functions the same way. It just needs to be reprinted to include the new terminology. So if there's not something worth saying about it, in our opinion, we may skip a point entirely. With
1: that in mind, let's go ahead and move on to the first topic covered in this rules glossary, the ability check. Back when we did our review of the first playtest material published for 1D&D, Rob and I had a lot of opinions on how ability checks were being handled at the time. It is important to note here that they have gone back and recanted some of the changes that they initially put forward in the first packet and changed them back to something that is going to be a little bit more familiar to players of 5th edition. Specifically, ability checks no longer guarantee failure on a role of a natural one and no longer guarantee success on the role of a natural twenty. Rob and I were fairly hesitant on that change when it was initially presented, and I think it's safe to say that we were both feeling fairly positive on it being left unchanged in this new version.
0: Yeah, I, I could live with it. If when we get the next edition of Dungeons & Dragons, 1s are always auto-fails and 20s are always auto-successes, but it wouldn't be my preference, and here they have reverted to something that suits
1: my tastes more. I will admit that it would have made certain situations more interesting, but by and large, I agree. As a player of 5th edition, as opposed to exclusively a dungeon master, I like setting myself up for success. And part of that involves mitigating my chance of failure, making it very difficult for me to fail at things that should be very easy for me. Yeah, and that's the thing. The
0: chance of guaranteed success, to me, does not outweigh the chance of guaranteed failure. Even though it is mathematically an equivalent chance, I would rather trust in my numbers and my bonuses than in my ability to roll a 20 to save me from that one, right? I agree. My numbers might help me succeed whether or not I roll a 20, but no amount of numbers can save me if I roll that one. So yeah, I'm I'm happy with this. This is fine by me. By the way, I know we've talked a bunch about ability checks in general and how they fit into the new D20 test framework. But did you catch there, under the skills paragraph, where they mention a strength check parentheses, acrobatics or athletics.
1: I did notice that. I actually underlined this in my own notes because I saw this as continued precedent for a possibly somewhat underutilized mechanic in 5th edition whereby you could use any ability score to modify any skill proficiency, such as at times making an intelligence medicine check instead of a wisdom medicine check. When I read this paragraph, I took that sentence as an indication that they very much mean to move forward with that rule being available for Dungeon Masters to apply.
0: Which I am very happy with, and I think will be the case, but I don't think that's why they included this here. Because they didn't list all of the skills after they said strength check, they could have applied it to any number of skills, or they could have applied any number of ability scores to those skills. I think this is specifically following a format set in 5th edition where they say a charisma deception check or a strength athletics check, meaning that this ability score will modify this particular skill. I think this is teasing, or perhaps toying with the idea, presenting to players the concept of making acrobatics a strength-associated skill going forward, which I would be fine with because strength has gotten very little love in
1: the skill list in fifth edition and since i would agree both strength and constitution are two of the most underutilized stats in fifth edition because strength only applies to one skill check constitution applies to none strength and constitution saving throws are not among the most frequently challenged in fifth edition and Constitution, while every character will use that to determine their hit points, which is a very important stat, it really applies to nothing else other than your Constitution saving throws, and Strength can be very important for characters that rely on it for their attack rolls, but, I mean, what else is it useful for? Carrying capacity? If you use encumbrance rules, it can be moderately useful there, I guess, but when you're comparing it to things like charisma intelligence and dexterity or even wisdom it it just does not stack up in terms of the breadth of its usefulness right and i think that strength is getting kind of a raw
0: deal there because i think strength should be equally useful as dexterity in the game it is a very important (laughs) physical value i'm actually surprised and somewhat disappointed with how important dexterity is to fifth edition Almost every class I play, even when I'm playing a martial class, it behooves me in more ways to have a high dexterity than it does a good strength score. And it's why I don't play martial characters as often.
1: Yeah, that's why you'll see a lot of dungeon masters apply strength to intimidation checks and things like that, because ironically, strength is not a very strong stat so if i got some kind of
0: an incentive to be a strength-based character or if there were more things that my strength-based character could do i think that's a good move and i think they're teasing that here and we'll see them do that with another skill later on when it comes to animal handling but we'll we'll get there when we get there I just thought that was a neat little thing they just they didn't really address, they just kind of snuck under the rug. I like too that they specify that making an ability check should cost your action. That's stated in 5th edition, but not strongly enough. Every table has a player asking, you know, I just said something to this guy, can I roll my intimidation? Uh and that usually is usually coming after I've made my three attacks for the turn. It's, <laughs> well, no. No, you've you've done a lot already. In fact, it specifically mentions influence as an action later on in the glossary, and I'm looking forward to talking about that. I'm looking forward to talking about a lot of things, Steve, (laughs) but I'm glad that that paragraph is here front and center as soon as you start reading the glossary to make that a very clear point.
1: I also like that it takes some time to explain difficulty class. As in 5th edition, it says the default DC should be around 15 And that the DCs can be on a sliding scale usually between 5 being a very easy task and 30 being a nearly impossible task. And that rolls should only be asked of the players if there is potential for failure or it is narratively interesting. So there's no point in having someone roll for a easy task if there is absolutely no risk of failure. And there's also no point in having a character roll for a task that is literally impossible. The highest DC is 30, and that is for nearly impossible tasks. As they said in the first playtest pack, if if it's impossible for the character to do, don't even ask them to roll. This is one of my favorite
0: hobby horses, one of my favorite soapboxes when it comes to Dungeons & Dragons. This is one of the few things I have felt compelled to make a YouTube video talking about. uh, One that I really enjoyed making and have actually gone back to watch just to see myself get (laughs) excited to talk about uh, in a bad way. But yeah, I, I love all the stuff. I disagree with nothing you've said. Interesting to note that they say that the default difficulty class should be 15. That's coming from the history of D&D, and that really became a thing towards third edition. I think that's a little high, and I think du- Wizards of the Coast thinks it's a little high. And I, I'll, I'll show you what I mean as we continue to go through. But interesting
1: that they put 15 as the default, and remember that for later. Looking forward to circling back around on that topic as we move on to armor training. Now, this was in 5th edition referred to as armor proficiency. It is your ability to behave effectively in combat when you are wearing armor of a certain type, that being light, medium, or heavy. As in 5th edition, you have disadvantage on any D20 test That involves strength or dexterity, and you can't cast spells if you are wearing an armor with which you have no training. This is functionally exactly the same way that it worked in 5th edition, just using the new terminology. The only change in this category is that in 1D&D, if you equip a shield that you lack armor training in, now in addition to the other disadvantages that you would normally have, you don't gain the armor bonus that you would get from wielding the shield. In 5th edition, doing so would have had lots of disadvantages, but at least you would have still got that plus two. But I think this makes a little bit more sense, don't you? I'm torn on this one, actually. I, I like that fact. We've talked before recently, I think, about
0: my love of the shield maiden archetype. Someone who is running into battle with sword or axe and shield in hand and making great use of the shield, and I think that comes through training, and that comes through exercise, and that comes through experience. So I think that there should be a definite reward for being proficient with your shield. However, you are walking around with a shield. You are walking around with portable cover. And cover gives you, at minimum, a plus two to your armor class. I don't know that you necessarily need training to hide behind cover, whether or not it is attached to your body. Hmm. So, functionally, yes. I I like this. I like the direction they're going. I just find it odd. (laughs) I find it difficult to narratively justify in terms of the mechanics.
1: Even as you just started talking, I began to consider the fact that a shield would basically provide you with cover. Would it provide you with half cover... From effectively all targets, if you were not proficient in it, is the is the question that I'm having to ask myself now. Is That is a good question, because, you know, if you are on the other side of the cover, say you're being
0: flanked, or someone is behind you, if you're in melee and you're trained with the shield, doesn't matter where the attack is coming from, you have the armor bonus for the shield. On the other hand, if you are charging an enemy position and you interpose the shield in front of you,
1: I mean, that's half cover. So... I don't know. Interesting. Right, whereas an increase to your armor class would be unilateral and omnidirectional. Whereas cover is never omnidirectional. So I guess that would be kind of the question then, wouldn't it? I don't know. I think I like the way that they're handling that. Yeah, as a dungeon master, I think if you were having arrows rain down on
0: you from a turret and you carried a shield with which you were not proficient, I would probably give you the benefit of the shield from that particular direction in that scenario. But it's not guaranteed, right? It's not something that you can have regardless of the situation. We've
1: gone in a really niche direction, haven't we? Yes, we have. (laughs) All right, let's move on to artisan's tools. Now, this is the first of the three different types of tools that are included here in the glossary. Which is what, uh, gaming sets and musical instruments? Correct. Those are the three types, along with artisan's tools. Now, I'm going to go ahead and cover all three of these at once, if that's okay. And we'll just skip them when we come to the ones later on. The efficiency. Yes, we're just going to go ahead and talk about them simultaneously, because the changes that have been made are similar across the board.
0: The changes that they've made to these seem to be in the name of simplicity, whereas in 5th edition, if you wanted to procure one of these items... You would need to reference a particular chart, and every item on that chart would be one of these three types, and then they would each have a price individually assigned to those items. Here, they
1: seem to have very much streamlined the process for all three. Indeed. In fact, all of the artisan's tools have a set price, unilateral that applies to all of them. The same can be said for instruments and gaming sets. All artisan's tools now cost 15 gold each. All instruments now cost 20 gold each, and all gaming sets cost a single gold piece each. Now, I personally am a big fan of this change because, I'm going to be honest, I don't enjoy looking things up. And I don't really know anyone who does. Like Mr. Excel sheet doesn't like looking things up. That's why I make the Excel sheets, so that I don't have to look things up. I have all of that information in a single place, and I don't have to cross-reference stuff. And my god, 5th edition required you to cross-reference things a lot overall the cost of these tool sets has decreased on average gaming sets used to range from a silver piece to five gold an average of 1.5 gold and that's been reduced to a set one gold per each set artisan's tools used to range from a gold to 50 gold with an average of about 17 has been reduced to a set 15 each Instruments were the only ones where the average increased. used to range from 2 gold to 35 gold a piece with an average of about 14 and a half. That has been increased to 20 gold per instrument that you buy in one D&D. But by God, I will gladly pay that 5 and a half gold never to have to look it up again. So
0: depending on what you are looking to procure and what your characters like to carry around, perhaps this will work in your favor, very much so, or perhaps... You're going to be paying more for something you could have gotten on the cheap in 5e. But knowing Steve, the resale value of anything (laughs) that you could start the game with (laughs) is exciting. Yes. Because I can start with what used to be a one silver deck of cards or something, I imagine, and now I'm selling them for seven and a half gold pieces.
1: Oh, yeah. And again, efficiency. Like, gold is valuable, yes, but time is also money. And I will take saving time at every opportunity I can around the table. You know what? That's fair. Alright, so that's all of the tools out of the way. What a
0: marvelous time saver. Moving down the page to the attack action, you know how this works. The only thing really worth noting here is that instead of using a free action on your turn, as you did in 5th edition, to draw a weapon, now you can equip or unequip a weapon as part of the attack action. No matter how many attacks you get, you still can only equip or unequip a single weapon, But it's nice to have this streamlined. It's nice to have this not taking up another part of your turn, not be another action to keep track of for the player or the
1: dungeon master, and just have it be a seamless element of something you are already doing. Functionally, it ends up working about the same where you can draw or stow a single weapon on your turn when you take the attack. Uh, But it does leave the option open that if you are, say, a fighter with the action surge feature, that you can actually draw or stow a second weapon when you take the second attack action, which I kind of enjoy. Also, I guess it's worth noting that a spellcaster who is not
0: making an attack action cannot equip or unequip a weapon as part of casting a spell, so it may take up a larger part of their turn if they're not attacking. For example, like a Hexblade, who might want to cast Eldritch Blast on this turn, is probably not going to get the weapon out, but when it comes time to use it, It's part of
1: the action required to use it. I don't know, just some food for thought. Yeah, I guess that does bring up an interesting point about maybe swapping what is in your hand if it is not a weapon and what resource that would use. You know, as though you were changing from a spellcasting focus to some other implement like a healer's kit or something like that. I will be interested in seeing how that all plays out. But of course, if you're going to be making the attack action, then you're going to need a weapon to do it with. And so this specific paragraph will only come up if you are intending to make weapon attacks. Right. So for the guys doing this more often than anybody else,
0: this is going to be an easy way to get it done. And when you are ready to use that weapon and you make your attack roll, we have gone back in time a little bit. We have rewound the clock on how attack rolls and criticals work in this playtest content compared to the last one that was released. Listeners of this podcast will remember that Steve and I had some opinions, concerns, on how attack rolls work, specifically with how critical hits worked in the last playtest content, where only the weapon damage was doubled. Not any spells added to it, not any modifiers, not any class features like sneak attack. But as it exists here, it works like it did
1: in the 5th edition player's handbook from 2014. So... Hooray! That's, that's that's what we like. Even short-term listeners of the podcast will probably have noticed that I really like paladins and Rob really likes rogues, and both of those had a lot to lose if only the weapon damage die was doubled on critical hits. Right. So both of us are very happy to see this changed back and hope that it stays that way moving forward. Look, there's a lot of
0: ways you can handle crits at your table, and the way that they presented them in the last playtest content was the worst one I've ever heard. So I'm glad... <laughs> It's not that one.
1: Personally, I enjoy the homebrew rule where you max your damage die once and then roll again because I I don't enjoy when my critical hits do less damage than I could have done on a non-critical hit, but uh, that does significantly increase the power curve. So, you know, I hope that they make that change, but if they don't, I guess I understand. I'll probably just homebrew it anyway. Hey, as long
0: as it is consistent as long as the players and the monsters have the same opportunities, which was not in the old playtest content and is now
1: returned to Monsters Can Crit, baby. (laughs) I'm so (laughs) happy about that. Next up, we have Barkskin. Yes, the spell, Barkskin. It's here in the glossary because there's only two spells listed in this playtest material that have changes versus their fifth edition counterparts. Outside of just having their spell school changed. Indeed, yes, their actual spell text and effects have been changed for this playtest material.
0: The old bark skin was basically a better version of mage armor, right? It gave you a higher base armor class. This new version of bark spe- of bark skin is basically an improved version of the heroism spell, giving you a certain amount of temporary hit points at the start of each of your target's turns. The difference is being Heroism, the temporary hit points do not get to include your proficiency bonus. This one they do. The Barkskin spell lasts longer and can be cast as a bonus action instead of as an action. For this exchange, you sacrifice the inability to be frightened. If Heroism is cast on you, you can't be frightened for the duration. But you're getting more temporary hit points back per turn, and as with Heroism, if you cast it at a higher level spell slot, you can target additional creatures. This is still probably not gonna be how I'm spending my second level spells, and I'm not sure I like it better than the old
1: version of Barkskin, but I don't dislike it. It's a fine spell. Well, you know what? I do prefer this to the old version of Barkskin, and I'm gonna describe why as briefly as I can. The old Barkskin was a casting time of an action. This one has the casting time of a bonus action. The old one simply modified your AC to a flat 16. This one offers an entirely new mechanic, that, other than the heroism spell, can't really be found in other ways. Now, obviously not druids, but several mages would have access to the mage armor spell, which would give you a modified AC. What I like about this is that if a primal caster can find his way to dip his toe into the arcane spell list, like, say, through the magic initiate first level free no prerequisite feat, you can have both bark skin and mage armor, Running on your character simultaneously while uh, admittedly that's fairly niche. I really like the thought of having both of those spells up on my caster at the same time. Yeah, th- there's going to be some uses for it' It's,
0: it's not something that I, saw, I can't wait to cast this, but it's it's definitely good and I'm look, I'm a
1: fan of any spell that can be cast as a bonus action. Just in general, I was about to say the exactly the same thing and anything that gives me a bunch of temporary hit points that lasts up to an. That sounds pretty great too. I mean it's not the same as healing but having a renewable source of temporary hit points does sound really good. Oh yeah your character will be a lot more durable and this is going to be a great spell to cast on someone
0: else because you don't want to lose your concentration and your source of temporary hit point revenue. You'd rather put that on somebody else and then push them into the middle of the enemies and uh,
1: say, I got your concentration, buddy. You're good. good. Uh, I'm I'm giving a thumbs up like people can see me. It's like, you got this. (laughs) I'll just be back here hiding and concentrating, but I'm I'm concentrating for you. (laughs) Hey, speaking of hiding, you know what hiding doesn't work against?
0: Blindsight. Blindsight pretty much works the same way as it did in 5th edition. It's the next point in the glossary. It does have a few extra words tacked on there that 5th edition did not make mention of. Blindsight in 1D&D, at least as far as this playtest material is concerned, is not effective against creatures behind total cover, which is interesting. I, I know why they put that in there, because Blindsight doesn't help you see through walls, right? Just because you are within 10 feet of an enemy, but there's a wall in between you, you cannot see through the wall and detect them. However, a prone creature behind a couch has total cover and apparently blindsight won't help you see them yeah makes sense to me oh no interesting <laughs> i mean I, I imagine blindsight as being like the the terrible daredevil movie sense sure where you kind of see everything in a certain radius around you and i
1: think daredevil can detect somebody on the other side of a box but with this version of blindsight maybe not well the way that it works is basically echolocation is i, I think the way that blindsight is often utilized and flavored so it would make sense that something on the other side of total cover would be more difficult, if not impossible, to detect. Yeah, yeah, I get that. All the science people can tell me, you know, that a bat or something with actual echolocation can probably determine what is on the far side of an object. But the fighter with blindsight might not be able to. I think it's pretty reasonable to say that, at least.
0: Yeah, and, and like I said, they, they need some kind of defense against, ah, well, he's on the other side of a door, but I know where he's there because I have blindsight. So
1: I get it, and I, I don't really have a problem with it it is just a change that's worth noting next up on the list is going to be climb speed we're just going to push that forward to when we talk about movement in general because talking about the different move speeds is going to have a lot of the same notes we'll cover it in a minute speaking of a lot of the same notes creature type effectively unchanged from the previous edition don't worry about it let's move on the next big topic of conversation is the d20 test Once again, this is the term that is going to encompass ability checks, attack rolls, and saving throws, basically any time you pick up a d20 as long as you are playing this game. The big change in this release is that they have once again gone back and recanted something from the previous playtest release, where they said that any result of a natural 20 when making a d20 test would grant the person who rolled it heroic inspiration. In this playtest material... They have flipped that on its head and are now awarding heroic inspiration on any roll of a natural one. It
0: wasn't all that long ago when we were talking about how we had a problem with the self-fulfilling prophecy that was getting inspiration when you roll a 20. Was it a big deal? No. But did it make sense to us? Also very much, no. You turn someone into an inspiration mill, and inspiration happens more often, crits happen more often, And in the version of the playtest material we were playing before, natural 20s meant a lot more and meant automatic successes. And it just kind of became a gross mess. And as a dungeon master, I like awarding inspiration to my players for doing heroic things and for role-playing their characters well. And it cheapens that gift somewhat. It cheapens that reward to be able to generate it yourself by being lucky. Now, though... Being able to generate it yourself by being unlucky means you are less likely to be unlucky again. And we all know it's a case of the feel-bads to hit a natural one. So having a weapon against allowing that to happen again in rapid succession is a worthy
1: change. At least in my book, what do you think? I agree. In case anyone missed it somehow in the rest of this discussion, Heroic Inspiration basically will give you free advantage at any point that you want it on an upcoming d20 test. You can just pocket that and use it when you need it. So, though you may fail in the moment by rolling the lowest possible number on your d20 test, you now have pocket advantage that you can use at any point in the future. As Rob said, this appeals to me because when you use that advantage, it makes you less likely to roll another natural one meaning that you cannot use your inspiration to make more inspiration down the road. It will bolster your odds of success without creating a artificial pattern of success. And yes, it does make for a very nice consolation prize. Neither we nor Wizards of the Coast are the first people to suggest this system, and I know that it has been a homebrew rule at several tables in the past, but if Wizards of the Coast is going to codify a way to make heroic inspiration happen which I am slightly generally in favor of, I think that this is the direction to take it. Let's just dash on through the next three categories because they don't see a lot of changes. The dash action is functionally the exact same as it was in 5th edition. Crossing difficult terrain still costs double the movement that it would normally require you to move through that space, and divine spells are obviously the purview of clerics and paladins. Coming to something that we talked about a little bit in the Ranger episode,
0: exhaustion, or rather the exhausted condition, has seen a lot of changes. We talked about how things were different then, but let's go in just slightly deeper now. We've said many times that we like simple, and we hate having to look things up. The new version of Exhausted is quite simple. If you are suffering from exhaustion, you now have 10 degrees of exhaustion to different levels that you can be suffering from before you die <laughs> and for every level of exhaustion anytime that you make a d20 test you remove a number equal to your level of exhaustion from the result of that test also your spell save dc is lowered by the same number and that stinks it's it's a little bit of a debuff, but it is annoying. It makes you worse at things, numerically worse at things, and that is a case of the feel-bads. It's not as deadly or as detrimental or as dangerous as exhaustion was in 5th edition, but it does affect different things and more things,
1: arguably, from the get-go. Right. I expect that we're going to see a lot more ways to apply the exhausted condition in 1D&D because it has been scaled back a bit. Because the old exhausted condition used to have six levels between just fine and dead, and now we have what is effectively a 12-point scale, zero being working perfectly fine, ten different levels of exhaustion, and then the twelfth level of exhaustion being dead <laughs> Right. The old version of Exhaustion never affected your spell save DCs. It it never
0: touched that. I think I said in the Ranger episode, I like that there is a penalty for fairly stationary spell casters who are exhausted being unable to cast their spells as effectively as they would have before, which was kind of a thing in 5th edition. But going from disadvantage on ability checks. At the first level of Exhaustion. The first level of Exhaustion in 5e, yeah, to just a negative one. That's a lot friendlier. Of course, it's to a D20 test, not just ability checks, but disadvantage normally hashes out to be,
1: on average, a negative five. I think it's mathematically a negative five. I'm trusting internet mathematicians on that, but yes, it's supposed to be effectively a negative five. Look, if internet mathematicians are
0: wrong, we we have a lot of (laughs) talking to do. we have bigger problems we have more concerns than this (laughs) but yes i i very much agree i think exhaustion should be more prevalent if it is going to be this much friendlier more tolerable yes yeah but getting over exhaustion works the same way it always did you lay down for a long rest you lose one of those levels you know what used to be a thing in older editions of dungeons and dragons you would have to go as far as you could into the dungeon, and then you'd probably have to retreat because you didn't quite make it to the end, but you were out of resources, and then you'd go home and rest for a week just to get all your resources back. You'd go shopping, you'd get your hit points, repair your weapons, and then you'd soldier back on out and risk your life again. Maybe we will see multiple exhaustion levels coming quickly from various sources and see people have to hang out in town again.
1: To get rid of multiple levels of exhaustion at a time. Uh, it's always a blurry line whether you emphasize fun or realism in a game, isn't it?
0: Well, D&D has really skewed the bar in favor of fun lately. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's that's where we're at. Beyond the exhausted condition, we have expertise, which we have talked
1: to death over the past several episodes, and works exactly the same as it did in 5th edition. Let's keep going. We're going to skip over Fly Speed, because
0: again, we're going to be talking about movement stuff here in a little bit, and the gaming sets, because we talked about those, and on to the grappled condition. Now, the grappled condition has changed in a few noteworthy ways, most of which I think I, I agree with and am excited about. But, Steve, given the way that this combos with the new Unarmed Strike and with the new Grappler feet,
1: I know this was more exciting to you even than it was to me. Right. I have long stated that the grappled condition in 5th edition was weak. Weak sauce. The only downside to being grappled was that your speed became zero. And it was not even really hard to get out of. Like the grapple condition would end if either of you experienced any forced movement or if the grappler became incapacitated, or if you made a contested check. Now, the only thing that made it pretty inconvenient was that if you were obliged to make the contested check, then it took your action to do so. So it was basically the attacker using their action to potentially cost you your action down the road. Maybe more than one if they continued to win those skill checks against you. And maybe not even that, really. You're using your action as the grappler
0: to take away their movement they can solve that problem pretty easily by just using their action to
1: kill you and then you're not grappling them anymore. (laughs) Right, because certain creatures don't really care if you're holding on to them. (laughs) Certainly not all player characters care if you're holding on to them. But in one D&D, you will probably notice and care every time you get grappled because now in addition to your speed becoming zero and being unable to change, you now have disadvantage on all attack rolls against any target other than the creature that is grappling you. Which
0: you'd better hope That you are a melee attacker if you are grappled, because if you are trying to make ranged weapon attacks or ranged spell attacks against your grappler, this means you have disadvantage on everything. Everything. You
1: don't have a good option as far as attack rolls go. Out come the daggers. In addition, the creature that is grappling you can now drag and or carry you, which I want to say was the case before, but it was not part of the grappled condition. I appreciate the fact that it is all being consolidated here. Love cleaning that up. Finally, the part that I'm most excited about the grappled condition, as someone who could potentially be subjected to it, is how escaping a grapple works now there is an automatic strength or dexterity saving throw made at the end of each of the grappled creature's turns. The DC is basically calculated the same way that a spell save DC would be calculated, except that you are challenging the grappler's strength. And as always, the condition will end if there is forced movement or incapacitation involved. I'm kind of back and forth on this one. The fact that it is a saving throw,
0: it's a, it's a change. I don't really have a strong opinion on whether or not checks or saving throws are the best way to handle this. The fact that it's happening automatically is definitely an opportunity in favor of the grappled creature. They don't have to waste any part of their turn getting themselves out. The part that is interesting is that it's the end of the turn. So that means you are guaranteed one turn of being grappled, right? Does that make any sense? Because if you were the creature being grappled, you could use your action to try and get out, potentially succeed, and then move away and do other stuff with your turn. Ah, I see. Now you are stuck there for the turn. So it's kind of a reward for the grappler that you're not really going
1: anywhere with that turn. Uh, I see. Because I was thinking in terms of your action economy. I was like, well, it's going to cost you your action either way. Which is a good point because... Now
0: you are going to have more options of what to do with your turn if you want to get out of that grappled condition. It won't cost you anything to try and get out, but it does mean that you are in that boat
1: for this turn. For my money, it does make it theoretically easier to escape a grapple because it does not consume any of your resources, any of your action economy. However, I will say that inflicting the grappled condition is so much easier now than it was in 5th edition. So I think think it kind of evens out the fact that you now have an opportunity to apply the grapple condition anytime you make an unarmed strike which can be multiple times on the same turn if you have more than one attack does balance that out a good bit because in fifth edition it used to require your action yes
0: and we'll, we'll come back to that when we get to the unarmed strike portion so put a pin in that there's more to say on that topic in general though I didn't have an issue with how escaping a grapple or initiating a grapple was handled in the old edition, but I'm very much glad that being grappled is a bigger problem now. You shouldn't be okay with anybody grabbing you and holding you in the middle of a life or death situation.
1: Let's move on to the second spell that has been changed in the 1D&D playtest material. This is one of the first things that really made me stop and say, hold up, we have made some changes. This is a big one. The Guidance spell is no longer
0: an action spell. It is no longer something that you do on your turn to preempt an ability check. Now, still a cantrip, it is a reaction with a range of 30 feet that you can use to add a d4 when someone near you fails an ability check. So it's still increasing the same value, it only triggers when it is needed and costs
1: a different resource in your action economy one DD is basically treating the guidance cantrip in much the same way that they treat bardic inspiration it is now something that you do in response to potential failure rather than to prep for potential success right and i think
0: actually that kind of fits the flavor of guidance better maybe like if you are struggling if you can't quite succeed on something on your own Then a little bit of divine inspiration, which is how I think the guidance spell realistically works in the fiction of the game, tips you over the edge. Just a little bit of a spark, a little bit of a nudge helps you succeed where you otherwise would have failed. And the fact that it's coming in in the heat of a moment, once again, as first aid instead of as preventative care, I think is fine. Having it be a reaction instead of an action kind of also makes it something that is useful in the throes of combats more so because no one was going to take their action in the middle of a fight to cast guidance i mean realistically probably not right but maybe a reaction i
1: could see that personally i disagree i kind of liked the thought that guidance was something that you provided another character with in preparation for something that they were about to undertake We've covered before when we talked about bardic inspiration in the bard episode that I am personally a prepper who would like to set myself and my party up for success rather than respond to failure. It's, it's just the way I prefer to play
0: the game. Well, can I soften that blow for you a little bit? As a reaction, it's not concentration, so you can't lose it, and it won't take up any concentration from other spells that you're casting. That
1: is true, and I do appreciate the fact that I can do this at range. Although I think that that is pretty necessary when you're using it in this way that you are. And 30 feet is not far (laughs) (laughs) in terms of D&D battle maps. When I think of using reactions, I very often think of combat. But I don't think of this as a combat-centric spell because ability checks don't come up very much during combat. But we are going to be covering some actions that you can take in this playtest material that might actually be combat applicable. And in those cases, maybe something like this would be a little bit more appreciated. However, there are a lot of other things that compete for your reaction when things are time-sensitive. Now... Let's say you and your party are attempting to climb a cliff face, and one of your party members fails their athletics check. Now they're getting ready to fall, and you have to choose between trying to guide them into a better role to prevent that fall or doing something like casting featherfall. Yeah, and yes, I know that they're on different spell lists, but you know there's there's a lot of ways to get around that, such as the magic initiate feat. So I don't know, I just these those are decisions that I would rather not be making. I would have rather sit at the bottom of the climb, cast guidance on each member before they ascend, and still have my reaction available to safeguard them if they start to plummet back down to their deaths.
0: See, a lot of people struggle to find things to do with their bonus action, depending on the build that they have, and especially newcomers to 5th edition. Like, oh man, I have this resource on my turn, and I didn't plan my character to have anything to do with that, and that's not a knock against any new players or anything, I'm just saying that that's a struggle that most of us coming into this edition have had with some character at some point. I'm still that way with reactions. I'm not using my reaction every round in combat. And having something available that maybe I could use it in a way that I didn't before, I'm in favor of. What I'm not in favor of is that final paragraph on the Guidance spell. Once a creature rolls the die for the spell, whether or not it has made any difference, they can't benefit from this spell again until they finish a long rest. This is so not the guidance. (laughs) This is so not your grandpa's guidance. This is a very different spell. I
1: tell you what, this ain't my guidance.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That one sentence, it is just one sentence, may stop me taking this spell. Because there's, there's very few limitations on any
1: other cantrip, right? It doesn't matter how many times you cast Firebolt, it's still Firebolt. And you know, that's the thing really, is honestly, the changes as written might actually be considered an improvement were it not for this limitation. If they gave me the ability to cast Guidance as a reaction at the range of 30 feet whenever a party member failed an ability check. That would be a buff in my estimation. Yeah, no brainer. Take it. The fact that it is whenever a party member fails a check once per party member per long rest, that is a significant drawback as opposed to being able to prep and hand out this spell an infinite number of times between each long rest. Yeah, and it's still not a bad spell. I still like the spell,
0: but if I only get so many cantrips, this is probably not making the cut against the competition.
1: This is what, our second favorite cantrip in 5th edition?
0: Yeah, I think it was. Could have made an <laughs> argument
1: for it being our first, and oh, how the mighty have fallen. With a single sentence. it uh, Why? <laughs> you didn't need to be there. This is a fun thing to playtest. And I am very curious to see how it ends up in the final version. If it remains the way that it is, I'm not saying that I will never take it. I am saying that it has gone from being a must pick to a niche pick. Well, especially with so many classes being able to
0: prepare their spells on the daily now uh, and known spells being removed so far in the playtest material that we've been presented. You know, maybe there are days you pick this up, but I mean, come on.
1: That That's bad. That is true. That is true. Because you can prep into or out of this on a daily basis. Just some of the other cantrips are looking a lot better now. Which I suppose is a argument in favor of this. Maybe if something is a must pick in 5th edition, then it's something they should change moving into 6th edition. Because when you make something so good... Who are you and what have you done with Steve? That it's an auto-include... <laughs> then it decreases build variety. It decreases the uniqueness of your characters. Although there is something to be said for seeing a cleric enter your party and knowing we've got guidance now, guys. Yeah, I agree. That would and has helped a lot. Another way
0: to help your party is through the help action, a very undervalued action in 5th edition, one I think that often gets lost in the shuffle and overlooked. It is reiterated here and put in plainer language that makes what you are doing to achieve the effect make more sense, but at the end of the day, it's advantage on something that you're doing, and the same as it was in 5th edition. At least in terms of assisting on the attack roll. Steve pointed out
1: something that I initially overlooked when you were assisting with ability checks. And it is a minor change that I know a lot of tables have homebrewed that makes thematic sense, being that you can only assist a party member with a skill check if you yourself are proficient in that role. Which I like... I kind of find that interesting. I feel like you have imposed this limitation in some of your games before, or at least have espoused the virtues of doing it, even if you haven't done it yourself. Am I correct in saying that, or am I thinking of someone else?
0: No, uh, you were thinking of me, and I very much got that from The Godfather, when we were playing in a somewhat larger party, where there was a lot of skill variety and skill overlap, that you had no business telling anybody how to do something unless you yourself were good at it. There, there's a certain point where you get a too-many-chefs-in-the-kitchen situation where uh, a lot of input from people who don't know what they're talking about uh, is actually an entrance rather than a
1: help. <laughs> too many chiefs, not enough Indians. Pretty much. Except in this case, all of the chiefs were also just Indians. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think in most cases you're going to find that if you are
0: good at something and another party member is not, that you're just going to be the one doing that thing. But as you mentioned with your athletics check in the climbing a cliff scenario, maybe being a leader in that way and knowing what you are doing will help party members who have to make a check on their own merits that you are capable of making. Or perhaps if you are chained and someone is trying to pick the lock to your restraints, you might be able to talk them through it, whereas you are physically incapable of performing the task yourself. So I, I kind of dig this. I like that, and and I'm glad that you pointed that out because I completely glossed over that.
1: Yeah, I agree. And at any rate, it makes sense that you shouldn't be excessively helpful to one of your allies if you don't know what you're doing. I think that's the simplest way to state it. Like Your helpfulness should have its limits, and that limit is probably far south of advantage on the roll if you don't know how to complete the task yourself. So all in all, we're not as likely to see the help action come up as much in one D&D, but it'll probably be more meaningful when it does. I don't know. I would argue that being the guy in your group might
0: incentivize you to share that proficiency, that assistance with other people, just by tying it to something on your character sheet. It, It makes it, I'm going to think to use it more. I'll put it that way. But while we're on the subject of things that give other members of your party advantage, we come to the heroic inspiration part of the document. Now, we already talked about it a little bit earlier, and we're not going to rehash anything we've said already. I will just mention here that, as in the previous playtest document, you can only have one instance of heroic inspiration at a time. And if you already have heroic inspiration and would otherwise earn it, You can deflect it to another player at the table, and if no one can receive it,
1: it's wasted. So, smoke them if you got them. Next, we come to the hidden condition, which is a condition now. Hooray! It makes so much sense. Previously, it wasn't, and that has some weird implications, honestly. Let's go ahead and take a look at a couple of those, shall we? It has bullet points, and the bullet points have names, and we've stated before, I like keywords. So the first keyword that we come to is concealed. You aren't affected by any effect that requires its target to be seen. This is the one that kind of sticks for me a little bit because hidden is now a condition with the concealed keyword, which applies to you, not to your target. Meaning that if you are hidden from anyone, you are hidden from everyone. So if you are attempting to hide from your enemies, you are by default also hidden from your allies. So the same condition that makes you untargetable by your enemy's damaging spell also makes you untargetable from your allies healing spell. Yeah, that's not a bad point. And that does kind of
0: raise a topic. I think that maybe it should be possible to be hidden from one creature and not another, or at least concealed this element of it from one creature and not another if you are on the opposite side of a chest-high wall. Everyone on the far side of that chest-high wall should not be able to see you, but probably people on your side of the chest-high wall would know exactly where you are. But from a simplicity of running the game standpoint, this is very appealing. You can be seen, or you cannot be seen. Sacrificing realism for fun and trading complexity for ease, especially with how peculiar and how esoteric sneaking and hiding was in 5th edition, And people can come to me later and say, oh, no, it's actually quite easy. You do this, 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 this. They spread the rules out all over the stinking place. That they did. (laughs) And having it simplified
1: here, whether or not it is better, is better. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. Categorically, it's better because it is less arcane and can be understood. It can be defined in four paragraphs contained under four keywords on a single page. That I love. I don't know that I love the concealed keyword of the hidden condition being so unilateral, being an on off switch uh, that affects everyone or no one, but that is the way that they're putting it forward. I personally expect to see this tweaked somewhat moving forward because I don't know if that was intended. But if it was, it is very interesting and very different. It is elegant. But as you said, I do appreciate the fact that it is defined and it is simple. Also just I
0: want I want to just point out real quick that every other bullet point in this condition has a period at the end and the fact that this one doesn't did stick out to me.
1: Oh, oh, it's there. It's just
0: concealed. I'm I'm a little bit of a grammar Nazi. I I've written enough articles for the Dungeon Feed
1: now that the lack of punctuation and the lack of format sticks out. Anyway, surprise is the next keyword that we get to talk about. If you're hidden, then you get advantage on your initiative rolls. I like this one. This is just a little detail that
0: rewards you, like you said, for preparing. Because you're not hidden before you roll initiative on accident. This happens with planning and forethought. And being able to get the jump on your opponents is great. I notice we don't talk about surprise and the surprised condition as we go through this particular playtest material which I think will be revised in 1D&D and needs some revision. I don't know, it needs work. And every Most tables out there are running it wrong anyway because either they don't understand it or they disagree with how it is set. But I like this little ambush tactic of if I'm hidden when fight time comes, I'm quicker than you. Or at least I
1: have a shot at being quicker than you. So weirdly enough, surprised is not a technical condition in 5th edition. It does come up sometimes, uh, but I think that a lot of the way we think of it is kind of a throwback to previous editions. But when it does come up in a game, it is most often triggered by unseen enemies. At least that's been my experience with it. I know that there are other ways to set that up, but most of the time that it comes up, to me, seems like it's an ambush situation or a sneak attack situation or an assassination attempt sort of thing. So, I feel like having it be a subset of the hidden condition makes pretty good sense. And the way that it is mechanically represented here, giving the creature that is hidden advantage on their initiative roll, makes perfectly good sense to me. For my part, I'm pretty
0: satisfied with how this turned out. I mean, basically, anything is better than rolling initiative and having your first turn in initiative as a surprised creature be no actions no movement, no reactions until after your first turn. It was very dull and very
1: bad. It's just very bad. So this is this is better. Every table that I've ever been at where a surprise round, using air quotes, happened, it had to be explained every time. Mm-hmm. What could and could not be done, who was and who was not surprised, and it just it it never flowed it was never seamless now the people who are doing the surprising are more likely to go before the people who are surprised and we don't have to have a special round with special rules me gusta at the time of recording just
0: last week i ran the first session of the lost minds of fandelver where there was a surprise situation and it was i i did not feel good running that first round of combat where half the people didn't get to do anything so yeah Big advantage. As far as the hidden condition goes, if you are hidden, you have advantage on attack rolls until the condition is ended, and attack
1: rolls against you have disadvantage. Now, that is interesting. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it seems like if you are hidden, then maybe they shouldn't be able to attack you at all? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure how to handle that. I'm still pretty sure you have to...
0: Well, I mean, you can attack an invisible creature just by targeting a space and swinging. And then if there's nothing in that space, then you just automatically miss. And if there's something in that space, then you have disadvantage of it. I guess that's what they're trying to communicate here. I don't know. Kind of weird. This might just be a little bit of a CYOA kind of situation. Future proofing is
1: what you call it. Yeah, I'm sure that there might be a situation where this comes up at some point. Off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of one, but that might just be because, you know, we're reaching the AM hours of recording. While you're
0: hidden, there are a few ways that you
1: can give yourself away
0: and end the condition on yourself. Being noisy, being discovered, attacking, casting noisy spells, or if your cover or obscurement goes away, or if you leave your cover or obscurement. Of all of those things, I think all those things make sense. Interestingly, if any enemy finds you, the condition ends. So all enemies will know where you are, and you will cease benefiting from the hidden condition against anyone interestingly it does say an enemy finds you so
1: if an ally finds you they they play it cool they don't give your position away and that takes us into the next aspect which is the hide action which grants you the hidden condition while heavily obscured or behind three quarters or greater cover and out of any visible enemy's line of sight if you meet all those prerequisites then you acquire the hidden condition after you have attained the hidden condition You are to keep track of the check's total which granted it to you. As long as you are hidden, that will become the DC that any creature, allied or hostile, must meet or beat with a wisdom perception check. That is some complicated words that I just said there, my friend. (laughs) And oddly, I think maybe
0: it's still simpler than it was in 5e. I like they define the conditions that must be met when you make that dexterity stealth check. I like that they mention cover. I like that they are mentioning cover when talking about ending the hidden condition. The fact that it is a DC 15 is consistent with what we talked about earlier when we were talking about ability checks and their default difficulty class. There are some really perceptive creatures out there in Dungeons & Dragons, though, and the fact that you are hidden from them unless they spend their action to make a perception check to find you with merely a DC 15 is interesting and I think that's moving us away from passive perception scores and some things just being naturally able to detect things that are around them and starting to require a devotion of parts of your turn to discover creatures who devoted a part of their turn to being hidden from you.
1: I love that all of this is codified and that all of this is simplified and streamlined and so Easily explained and so concise. Uh, The weird part of this for me is that one little note there that you
0: must be out of any visible enemy's line of sight. So are you
1: hidden even if an invisible enemy can see you? Rules as written, yes. Weird. You know what I don't love about this is that it basically employs Skyrim stealth mechanics. (laughs) (laughs) so picture this you and an ally are both hiding behind the same chest high wall and have acquired total cover from all of the enemies on the other side of it you sitting right next to your ally can take the hide action make your dexterity check and become hidden from them oh i see what you mean because you have three quarters or greater cover from all visible enemies and you made the stealth check, then you can acquire the hidden condition, which will then apply also to the person standing right next to you. Yep. Must have been the wind. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh. <laughs> if if we're sharing a hiding space
0: and I'm the rogue in the party, I'm unhappy already. <laughs> Get your own spot. But anyway, it probably needs some fine-tuning. There's probably a few more words that could be added or subtracted from that paragraph to make it make more thematic sense and to correct things like being plainly visible on the other side of some kind of barrier, more forgiving. But even as it stands, I
1: think it's it's an improvement from what we had. Bardic, to inspiration, feeling very positive about the direction that hiding and the hidden condition are going looking forward to seeing maybe a couple more tweaks in the future while we're on conditions
0: let's talk about incapacitated incapacitated was very short in 5e and by the way 5e had a lot of conditions and and I'm, i'm not saying it shouldn't have had all of those conditions but they were very confusing i've spent so many years playing this game and every time conditions come up i have to look them up because they're so specific and there's so much overlap and I'm not sure quite the minutiae of grappled versus restrained versus incapacitated
1: versus unconscious versus all of these things. Paralyzed is always the one that gets me because it includes the incapacitated condition inside of it. And then adds on to it, right? And I can't remember which way the nesting works. Right, exactly. Incapacitated has gotten more
0: complicated, but I think is closer to what incapacitated should have been. And gets a little bit more of an identity as a condition, in my mind, by extrapolating what the condition would really do to someone experiencing it. So, at the start, you can't use actions
1: or reactions while you are incapacitated. That much is as it was in fifth edition the condition goes on to state that if you were concentrating on any spells when you gained this condition your concentration is now broken now this was already the case in fifth edition however it was stated elsewhere under the concentration rules as opposed to being stated as part of the condition for my money i love the fact that they are now adding that to the condition so that you don't have to cross-reference another part of another book In order to make that connection just go ahead and put it in both places make it easier to understand i agree i like having it here also while incapacitated you are speechless you can't speak that
0: includes communicating with your allies conversing with your enemies or using verbal
1: components in spells this actually makes the incapacitating condition a lot more like the stunned condition from fifth edition the first bullet point of stunned in fifth edition said you are incapacitated can't move and can speak only falteringly So we're most of the way there here in 1D&D. Finally, if you are incapacitated when you roll initiative, you have disadvantage on the roll. Incapacitated is an interesting one now because I'm not
0: sure exactly what condition in the real world it is supposed to be mimicking, where you can't act, but you can move. You can't speak, but the things that you were normally good at, you're not as good at right now, or or you're not as quick to react. I, I, I don't know, like... I can't picture myself in a situation
1: where I can do some of these things, but not others. It's mini-stunned. It's, it's just half of the stunned condition. Yeah, I don't know. All right, moving on, we come to the most complicated part of this whole gosh darn glossary, at least in terms of how much page space it is devoted. And that is the influence action. For the most part, this is pretty much how it
0: was in 5th edition. Some stuff has been consolidated, some stuff has been streamlined, but there's nothing wholly new and foreign here. Each creature, from the Dungeon Master's perspective, is either friendly to the adventuring party, hostile to them, or indifferent. And they are unlikely to quickly change that attitude, though it may temporarily change based on the actions that the players take. And while a friendly creature can be moved to indifferent Without too much difficulty, some hostile creatures cannot be placated or have their attitude towards the heroes altered in any way in spite of the efforts of the adventuring party, which is good considering some stuff that appears later on. The influence action should take a creature's attitude towards the adventuring party into account. Characters wishing to modify that attitude need to at least devote their action to doing so, probably making an impassioned plea, using some knowledge about the personality traits, bonds, or flaws of a particular creature in order to
1: manipulate them, or good old-fashioned bribing. When it comes down to changing an NPC's attitude towards you, you are at some point going to take your action to make an ability check. Now, the type of ability check is going to depend on what sort of interaction you're having with that creature and what sort of creature that is. It could be any skill from animal handling, deception, intimidation, or persuasion, depending on all of those factors. Now, as Rob said, an immediate change in the attitude is probably not possible, but you may be able to blur the line a bit depending on your degree of success. You might be able to convince an indifferent creature to be somewhat helpful or convince a hostile creature to not actively work against your efforts. You might even be able to convince a friendly creature to go out of its way to help you. Each of the different attitudes has a default state that you can then seek to improve upon by virtue of your success. By making this check, depending on your degree of success, you stand to temporarily increase your favor in their sight. Notably, these will always be
0: charisma checks. And yes, you did hear that right. We did say animal handling, which is applicable when dealing with beasts and monstrosities. Animal handling looks like it's going to be a charisma check going forward in 1D&D, not a wisdom check. And I agree with
1: this. Making charisma even more powerful than it already was. Now, whether or not it is always going to be a charisma check or whether it is only going to be a charisma check when it is used to influence an animal has yet to be seen i would argue that's what animal handling is always for right is to influence an animal current indications would leave us to believe that that is the case
0: a shift in someone's attitude towards you thanks to a single ability check and a single action devoted is not likely to last very long you may get a guard to allow you to temporarily walk by the post at which they are stationed but you're probably going to have to make that check again if you try that again at a later date. Taking someone from friendly to indifferent, from indifferent to friendly, or from hostile to indifferent is going to take time and effort and possibly gifts, just like it does in the real world. Other thing that I will note is the table following this section in the PDF, Influence Responses. Do you remember when I said hang on to that DC-15 being the default for success on an ability check? I do indeed. Here, it states that when you are trying to influence a hostile creature to do you no harm, the difficulty class that you must meet is a DC-10, which, according to the typical difficulty class several pages above in the glossary,
1: should be easy right
0: is considered easy i don't think it should be easy to convince a hostile creature to leave you alone i think dc 10 being set as a precedent for a success in this area is appropriate it's also the same difficulty class listed as to get an indifferent creature to do what you want as long as there is no personal risk involved I think maybe that's fair. Or for a friendly creature to accept a small risk or a minor sacrifice. Maybe that's fine. I don't think hostile creatures should be following that same format. (laughs) I don't think the numbers should be that low. Much less a DC-20 to have a hostile creature do what you want it to do, whatever that may be,
1: As long as there's no personal risk. Okay, so looking at the definition of a hostile creature as defined in this playtest packet, it is simply someone who opposes the adventurers and their goals, but not necessarily to the extent that they would attack them on sight. Now, it does specify that some hostile creatures may be so ill-disposed towards the characters that no amount of charisma check is going to change that. I would argue that that is at least most creatures that they're going to be in active combat with. Possibly all. I don't think that any DM at any table is going to argue that a DC 10 persuasion check is going to convince someone who is in the process of stabbing you with their halberd to cease stabbing you with their halberd. (laughs) Rightly so. I think that at the very least, you might have to offer them some gold and get a higher check. (laughs) And you know what? I
0: think... That part is fine. I think a DC 20 to a hostile creature that doesn't feel like spilling your guts on the floor should be enough to allow a conversation and say, okay, yes, but, or okay, yes, if. Because this is someone who's, they're not indifferent, right? They oppose you. They want to see you fail. Their win condition is in opposition to your win condition. So they've got to be getting something out of it, and maybe that's assumed, but they're doing such a good job of not leaving room for assumption, of just spelling everything out for you, that I'm a little sad that that was listed here. I I don't mean to soapbox about this, we don't have to talk about it any longer, I just think that that DC 10 is too low, and that most creatures that I would consider hostile in my games are not going to be willing to ignore the player's actions. For a DC-10. So,
1: this is part of a table. It lists a DC-10 and a DC-20 influence response for each of the three different attitude levels. Of the six combinations that are presented, the only one that I take issue with is that DC-10 result for a hostile creature's response. And based on what you're saying, I believe that you feel the same way. The rest of these kind of are in keeping with what 5th edition presented and how I would expect it to go. I do prefer the 5th edition table on how to handle NPC hostility. And maybe when they take this out of playtest, they'll revert back to using something more akin to that.
0: As I climb down from my soapbox, let's discuss the invisible condition. It is pretty much the hidden condition. Instead of being... Concealed, you are unseeable, which has the same function, except that everything that you are wearing and carrying, in terms of equipment specifically, don't try and pick up the halfling, is also invisible with you. Also, you have the same surprise feature
1: where you have advantage on initiative checks while you are invisible. I like that they use the same keyword in two different conditions to denote the same effect. Even the wording is exactly the same. I like the consistency. As is the next bullet
0: point, attacks affected. Your attacks have advantage, attacks against you have disadvantage, same as with the hidden condition. It just lacks the qualifiers for what ends the hidden condition in the invisible condition because what will end your invisibility is probably more dependent on how you became invisible, as with the spell, and creatures
1: that are permanently invisible don't have to worry about it. Right, because in the case of the invisible condition, there is no perception check that a opposed creature can make in order to make an invisible creature visible again, where they could otherwise find a hidden creature.
0: I think enough said about that. Let's jump on down to the jump action. Hey, you did one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Jumping is going to work very differently in 1D&D than it did in 5th edition. And perhaps that's a good thing. I think we discussed this previously. There's a lot more swing in this version. It's not going to be as reliable as it was in 5e where it was tied to a static number based on your strength score. But there is room for some growth and potential here. When you take this action, you take a running start and then make a strength check. Either acrobatics or athletics. Once again, really looks like acrobatics is going to be a strength check. And either of these skills will help you jump harder, better, faster, stronger. I mean higher and farther. All you need to do is make a DC 10 check with either of these skills and you will jump a number of feet horizontally equal to the total of that check or half as much vertically if you fail the check you still jump just only five feet horizontally or vertically i think a five foot
1: vertical is damn impressive for a failed check (laughs) and of course if you don't move at least 10 feet immediately before taking this action then you will be making that check at disadvantage Once again, very in favor of this change because it is so much easier to understand and explain. And personally, the changes that they made to the consistency, I don't mind at all. It gives you the opportunity for some really ridiculous jumps, by the way. (laughs) Someone out there is going to argue with me about this, and I'm fine with having that argument. I accept it. When it comes for me, I will be prepared. And I will probably acquiesce to the subjectivity of their experience, but in my personal experience... I will probably still be able to make the jumps that I need to make as my characters that are capable of jumping. (laughs) We have already absolutely belabored
0: how we are a fan of the new changes to the light weapon property in the previous episodes. Rather than going over it here again, please go back and listen to our previous episodes. We worked very
1: hard on them. Something that we may or may not have mentioned in our previous episodes, I can't remember what got edited out and what didn't sometimes, is the new long rest mechanic. You all know long rest. That's where you sit for eight hours, at least six of which you must actually be sleeping, and two of which you must be doing at most light activity, such as reading or keeping watch. Once you finish a long rest, you regain all lost hit points, just like in 5th edition, and regain all spent hit dice, just like in 5th edition. Wait, that's not like in 5th edition at all. That's literally (laughs) twice as good. In 5th edition...
0: It realistically, but perhaps confusingly, only offered you half of your spent hit dice back on a long rest. This meant that to really recuperate, you had to spend some serious downtime not endangering yourself, and extended adventuring campaigns would see a gradual loss of hit dice to the point where continuing could be detrimental and you could exhaust your innate resources to heal yourself over time now and as we continue through the other points of the long rest you will see a long rest is
1: a cure all everything that's wrong with your character is going to be fixed with a good night's sleep and who wants to do a bunch of math when they get a long rest as always i'm generally in favor of anything that makes things simpler around the table and rather than having to round this way or that way based on this situation or that i can now just reset everything to full from hit dice to hit points and even my maximum hp because if your maximum HP was previously reduced, it now returns to normal. No more waiting on someone to cast Greater Restoration. That is a buff.
0: Also, your ability scores return to their normal values. If a monster attacks you with something that lowers your strength score, all you need to do to get all better is take a nap with your Snuggie. And while I'm normally in favor of things that simplify, I don't don't like this. I mean, sorry, Steve, but I don't think a single evening sleep is a cure for everything that ails you. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I feel worse than when I went to bed the night before. In D&D,
1: no character is ever going to experience that. Now that's just part of living a fantasy, Rob, living a fantasy. Mom always told you to get a good night's sleep, and that's exactly what your adventuring characters intend to do. The long rest has been buffed in just so many ways. Seriously, that not having to wait for a fifth level spell slot to get greater restoration alone is just such a boon for me. I don't ran into that many creatures that reduce my ability scores, but any character having the option to fix that feels good, even if it does feel a little cheap. And the rest of the rules for long rest remain unchanged, as far as I can tell, at least about how you must have at least one hit point when you begin a long rest in order to gain the benefits, how you can have no more than one long rest during a 24-hour period, and how long rest interruption mechanics work. I'm not personally sure if the rules on interrupting the long rest were ever codified in 5th edition, but the way that it's laid out here makes sense. If you meet the prerequisites for a short rest in search of a long rest, having your long rest interrupted does not invalidate the short rest that you have received. Laying long rests to rest, we come to the magic action, which was previously not an action in 5th edition. I think it was divided between the use magic item action and the cast a spell action, now both of which are consolidated into this new form. This, this pretty
0: much makes sense. I mean, they're calling it a new thing, but it basically works the same way. The only thing that I think really bears talking about is that last part, where if you're taking an extended amount of time, a minute or longer, to cast a spell with a casting time of such, you are taking the magic action every turn for that duration as though you were concentrating on a spell and if for any reason that process is interrupted the spell fails and the spell slot is not spent it is that final magic action where your magic is actually expended and so if you
1: don't get to actually pull that trigger no resources are spent you can abracadabra as long as you want but unless you alakazam then your resource is not expended. That's a weird way of putting it, but I can't actually find a flaw in it, so let's (laughs) all agree. Moving on to the move action. The one time it's actually appropriate to say that. (laughs) (laughs) We have specifically not talked about a couple of different types of movement in preparation for this segment, because this is a fairly hearty word salad of a section here. Most of it is unchanged from what you'd expect in fifth edition but there are a lot of things that have to be defined when you're talking about how your characters are going to interact with a battle map and navigate their way across it through fields through fires through forests through some word for oceans that starts with f (laughs) (laughs)
0: let's skip around a little bit and just take the easy parts out of this first In 5th edition, you could break up your movement across your turn. Move a little bit, do something else, move a little bit more, do a third thing, and then finish your move. That is still the same. You can use your movement and break it up into as many pieces as you want and use them at your discretion. Also, if you have more than one kind of speed accessible to your character, if your speed is reduced to zero... That applies to all of your various movement speeds. If somebody has you grappled, you can't swim, climb, or fly your way out of that situation.
1: You're stuck. Just like in 5th edition, if you attempt to climb or swim and you do not have an associated climb or swim speed, navigating the terrain in such a way will cost you double the movement that walking the same distance would normally cost. Ergo, if you try to climb 10 feet, you will expend 20 feet of your base movement, unless you have a climb speed. Also worth noting that if you
0: do not have a climbing or swimming speed in a situation that would be considered difficult terrain for climbing or swimming, then it costs triple movement to move through that space.
1: Which I'm glad that they codified, and I'm glad that it is not multiplicative. I greatly prefer that to having it halved again. Right. So, I mean, I I
0: imagine situations where this comes up might be fairly few But for instance, if you are in a whirlpool, someone who is swimming with no associated swim speed is going to have an even harder time moving through that area than someone who is naturally good at swimming and has a swim speed. But no one's going to have an easier
1: time as though they were swimming in the pool. As it should be. And we mentioned this next point back when we did our rogue episode. But if the character you're playing is blessed with more than one type of speed, such as a climb speed, a fly speed, or a swim speed, you can use more than one type on your turn. But each time you take a move, you cannot use more than one speed during that move. That is a weird and arcane concept to explain, but if you would seek to run and then swim, you must engineer a situation where you can take more than one move on your turn such as by, say, taking the dash action to give yourself a second move, and then you can break it up between your running and swimming. This also applies if you attempt to climb or fly. Right, and that's
0: a good thing because it became difficult without this rule. I don't think it's necessarily thematically appropriate. I think that you should be able to get a running start and then take off into the air, for example. But realistically, managing that would be complicated like i used half my walking speed so i have half my movement left so maybe now i can fly half my fly speed if it wasn't run that way in previous editions it was certainly run that way in games
1: that i have played in and it became very cumbersome very quickly and i have been on forums where i have seen people argue that they should be able to use their full movement speed and their full fly speed and their full swim speed all on the same turn Those people are jerks (laughs) So and and lying. So while, of course, that should not be the case, 5th edition did not sufficiently explain why that was not possible to their satisfaction, and it certainly didn't make that explanation easy to find when I attempted to refute them. (laughs) I wanted to go back and point out for flying in particular, if you have a
0: fly speed in 1D&D, if you're incapacitated or restrained... You fall. Unless you have the hover trait. Now, that wasn't a thing necessarily in 5th edition, and I think it makes good sense. Again, the incapacitated condition normally doesn't affect your speed, which confuses me why it would affect your flying, but certainly the restrained condition would. So it is it's worth noting that there are ways to inhibit the flying speed that wouldn't affect climbing or swimming, and that there is an additional function to the incapacitated condition that is not listed in the incapacitated condition. I didn't say it was interesting,
1: but it is worth noting. (laughs) Yeah, I did wonder why they didn't include that in the incapacitated condition. I guess maybe it just might not come up as much. I don't know. I I am generally in favor of just going ahead and codifying everything in as many locations as possible.
0: Right. Even though we have D&D Beyond now and similar search engines online, I still remember the days of flipping through rule books trying to find that one sentence that would answer the question that you needed. But let's carry on and... Well, skip over musical instruments, because we've already talked about them. And frankly, probably the primal spell list as well. We kind of already know what's contained there, since we've already talked about
1: the function of the spell list. Guess what? Druids and rangers get it. You're welcome. (laughs) Next up, we have ritual casting. Ritual casting, I think, got a pretty interesting change. Anyone who has access to a ritual spell can now cast it as a ritual. You no longer need a special ritual caster feature in order to do so. With that exception, it works how you remember. It is
0: more accessible and works the same way. We're getting near the end of the document now, and most of what we have to cover is either simple in concept or has been touched on in earlier episodes, such as the search action. And I'm going to go ahead and lump the study action in with this as well. We talked about these as we were going through the classes, They are new ways to spend the action of your turn to make ability checks to gain information. For the search action, you are trying to gather new information about the world around you by making an insight, medicine, perception, or survival check. All wisdom checks. As for the study action, you are trying to recall information about the world around you by making an arcana, history, investigation, nature, or religion check. All intelligence checks. Not too much to say here. This is really how it worked in 5e. They're just getting new names and making them more appealing to access. I will say, I don't think study is the word you should use for remembering something. Don't know why they selected that one. I mean, even the first sentence of the study action says, you make an intelligence check to study your memory. Or a book, or a creature, or a clue, an object,
1: or nothing. I, I I don't know. I might have called it something different. Well, I guess it makes a certain kind of sense, because, you know, even if you're not studying it in the moment, you did study it at some point. So I think it is well-named and poorly explained, perhaps. Next up, we have the changes to the short sword, which make it a simple weapon rather than a martial one, a change which we feel like should already have been the case, thus invalidating the need for change. Following that, we have the slowed condition. Guess what? It's a condition now. I think we mentioned that at some point in one of our previous episodes. It effectively imposes difficult terrain, whether or not you're in difficult terrain, with the limited movement keyword, which states that you must spend an extra foot of your movement for every foot of terrain you attempt to cross. Notably, this applies even if you are flying. If you're not touching the terrain, you're still slowed. Sorry about it. It also has the attacks affected feature, which states that attack rolls against you have advantage. Harder to dodge when you're slow, apparently. So I'm told. Luckily, it's lacking the
0: feature from the previous conditions that stated that your attack rolls have disadvantage. You're just as good at attacking while slowed, apparently. Just dodging, not so much.
1: Speaking of being bad at dodging, dexterity saving throws, disadvantage for you if you're slowed. Thanks to some consolidation on some previous points, we can move straight along to tool proficiency, which I know Rob had a point to make about.
0: Yeah, I think this is actually kind of exciting. Tool proficiency is going to matter more in one D&D. So previously, if your skill proficiency or your tool proficiency could apply to a check that you were making, then you could apply whichever one of those was likely to give you the greater bonus. For instance, if a thief is picking a lock using thieves tools and perhaps their sleight of hand skill, you could make a sleight of hand check or a Thieves' Tools check, whichever was more likely to give you the better result. Now, in one D&D, if you have proficiency in a tool and a skill that would apply to the check, you can benefit from them both. One of them being in addition to the roll, and the other giving you advantage on that check. So, being good at multiple things that would apply to a particular situation can
1: give you extra benefit. Which is a powerful buff that I'm really not sure how often that's going to come up oh i'll make it come up but that's going to be entirely dependent on your dm but if your dm wants you to have advantage on something by golly he can give it to you which he could have already done i don't know
0: (laughs) all right i'm going to take us through the next two very quickly because Oddly enough, the last thing in this document is one of the things that Steve is most excited to talk about. When we got hold of this playtest material, Unarmed Strike was one of the things that I think tempted Steve into going through this whole document with us, and so maybe we've saved the best for last. But standing in the way are Teleportation and Trimmer Sense.
1: Teleportation is teleportation. Well, that's the thing. Both of these next two points work effectively the same way that they did in 5th edition. Teleportation is movement that doesn't expend movement and doesn't provoke opportunity attacks. Right. You start somewhere, you end somewhere else, with none of the hassle
0: of leaving the space that you were in or traveling to your destination. It's it's teleporting. We, we all know how this works. Same with Trimmer sense. If you are in contact with the same surface as another creature or moving object out to a certain range of that sense... You are aware of it. There is no hiding from a creature with tremorsense unless you can levitate, or get off the floor, or in <laughs> everybody to <do> the dinosaur, <laughs> um, or in some other way get out of contact with any surface that creature is touching.
1: It's it's tough from Avatar: The Last Airbender, basically tough. Notably, I've always thought of tremorsense as being able to detect another creature that shares the same solid surface as you, although this one specifically mentions that it can work if you share the same liquid as well, which, I don't know if that was the case in 5e or not, but I honestly just never considered it. I like it. Makes me think of, like, Jimbei
0: from One Piece, which I know you don't watch, but Fishman Karate Man, it's pretty
1: OP. Who even has the time to catch up on that? My goodness. And now, it's time to talk about... Unarmed Strikes. Unarmed Strikes. This change was first heralded in the initial playtest packet that was released for 1D&D. And guess what? It's still here, and it's still good. It is now actually worth it to try and punch someone as a non-monk, non-barbarian, for two of these three reasons. I'll take the easy one. First of all, if you
0: hit someone with your fist, elbow, knee, or forehead, or basically any other body part, you deal damage to them to the tune of 1, plus your strength modifier, and your strength modifier specifically. This is how it worked in 5e. This is how it's going to work in 1D&D. But you have additional options
1: not afforded to you by the previous edition. In lieu of doing damage, you can choose to instead grapple the target. We've already gone over how the grappled condition is better than it used to be in 5th edition, No more contested checks. If you hit, you can apply the grappled condition and force them to make those saving throws at the end of their next turn. That DC is equal to 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus your strength modifier. And, of course, you can't grapple creatures that are two or more size categories larger than you. And, of course, you must be making this unarmed strike with an open hand in order to grab the target. No such luck for kicky monks. (laughs) Right. You can make an unarmed strike... With your elbow, with your knee, with your
0: foot, with your teeth. You can bite somebody. I guess that'd be an arm strike. You do the forehead butt from all the
1: martial arts movies.
0: Yeah, but if you want to grapple them, you can't have a shield and a long sword in each hand. You have to be able to grab people. And I've already poked fun at this, but I'm going to do it again. I think that having armor class be a factor in grappling, while definitely mechanically beneficial, is a little bit silly. Because I think that grabbing the guy in plate armor and grabbing the guy in leather armor is probably equally difficult, maybe even arguably easier to grab the clunky paladin wearing the plate mail who hasn't got as high of a dexterity than it would be for the lithe and slippery rogue in light armor.
1: But hey, that this is how it's written. Your final option does not require you to have an open hand like the grapple one does. You can also shove your target, pushing them either five feet away from you or, the almost always better option, knocking them prone. And just like the grapple, the shove is not possible if they are two or more size categories larger than you. Alright, I poked one at the last one. This one I really
0: like, especially for classes that will get more than one attack. I can see someone just pushing and knocking and driving someone back towards a precarious ledge or other hazard by using multiple attacks to just push them a bit back at a time and not giving up any ground to themselves. I can see someone tripping with their first attack, then kneeling down to that prone target and absolutely go into town on them. This not only is very mechanically advantageous, as I would argue the previous points are, but gives you a new way to use this unarmed strike, In a meaningful way, that does make sense. I think if you can hit somebody's armor class, you should be able to palm strike them back, regardless of what kind of armor they're wearing.
1: Right, and these changes to the unarmed strike are important because these options are available to you each unarmed strike, meaning that, as Rob said, you can do this multiple times a turn. And for those of you who enjoy playing monks... Your characters will actually be good now. I still don't see what you have against monks. I think they're good. As Rob said, the ability to knock your target prone and then use the upgraded unarmed strikes of a monk at advantage for the rest of the turn is insane, and you can do it from such early levels. It's just going to be a delight. And the changes to grappling are so good, and the changes to unarmed strike make grappling so easy that every monk is going to be a grappler now.
0: I think, too, that the changes here make unarmed strikes a more attractive option, a more versatile option for classes that aren't monks. A unarmed fighter makes a little bit more sense and is a little bit more appealing. Not to mention scenarios which come up fairly often in games like this where you're caught unawares or attacked during the night and you don't have all your armor and maybe your weapons are stolen. You aren't defenseless. And you have more options with what to do with your turn and what to do with your attacks and how to
1: use an unarmed strike in ways that benefit you and that you can get a little bit creative with. Agreed. If your build is not completely focused around unarmed strikes, they are now good enough for you to consider them anyway. And if your build is completely focused around unarmed strikes, then it's a good build now. You're an even happier camper. Well, that literally covers it. We have finally gotten through Yay! the entire Yay! second playtest release for 1D&D covering the expert classes and all the little bits and bobbles that you would need to play them. I think we have said the words moving on
0: and pretty much the same as 5th edition <laughs> more than I thought we would ever say
1: them in our lives oh. in the last few recordings. Moving on, next up, after that... Oh, it's been a lot, but I am very excited about what we have been presented with here, and I can't wait to try more of it out myself.
0: You know, after the first PDF that we got for the playtest material for this new edition, I was trepidatious. I saw some things change that I didn't want changed, and I saw a lot of 5th edition in that first document. And some of the things that I did see, I took great exception with. In this document, they have recanted. They've repented of certain things that I didn't like. They've given me a lot that I can really get excited about. And I am pretty eager to see what they give me next. I'm genuinely excited and hopeful in a positive way to read more about what
1: 1D&D has in store for us. Speaking for myself, I'm sitting here with bated breath waiting for this mage packet release. I really hope that it comes out next, because while this packet included some of your favorite classes... Both of my favorite classes. I can't wait to see what changes they have in store for the Sorcerer and the Warlock. Uh, I'm I'm going to have fewer opinions on sorcerer and warlock, definitely
0: warlock, than I did on some of these others. Because the way that you feel about monks, my friend, is how I feel about warlocks. I think they're if you're not a hexblade, you're just not playing much of anything at all.
1: How dare! How dare! Granted, I'm just kind of a warlock multi-class stand as opposed to a, a straight warlock stand. But I'm excited if they give
0: them the ranger treatment though. I think Warlocks in 1D&D may change my mind.
1: Because again, they took one of my least favorite classes in 5e and made it into something I'm super excited to play. Well, we do know that they're keeping Pact Magic and that is categorically different from the spellcasting feature. We just have to see how that is going to manifest itself in 1D&D. What about you, listener? What things have you been most excited about as we covered the expert classes at all? And what is it that you're looking forward to hearing about most as we move forward? Are there things that you were particularly enraptured with as we went through this material or things that particularly concerned you? Don't forget, there is a survey available on D&D Beyond. You can find it with a very simple Google search that will allow you to provide feedback on all of these prospective changes that they're going to be making to the game that we know and love, and they are actively looking for you to provide them with that so that they can make a game that you are excited to play.
0: Also, as ever, please, if we're going through the glossary and we miss something that you feel is very important or that stands out, we are but two simple human beings. It is very possible that we miss something very important. We
1: do have yet to ascend.
0: Do come into the Discord and let us know what that was. We don't want to miss stuff. We're just fallible that way.
1: Sometimes we record into the very small hours of the morning and overlook something in the material or even in our own notes. And nothing delights us more than being called out on that. So if you would like to do so, find us at any of our social media accounts or come join our Discord and tell us all about how we messed up. He speaks sarcastically, but genuinely,
0: if we've missed anything, I want to know about it. I want to be prepared. I want to be educated on these topics. And by the way, before we say farewell, I would just like to thank one particular member of our Discord, Walter McIntyre. Starting a few months back and at... No request of ours, and with very little by way of fanfare, Walter McIntyre has been the sole financial supporter of this podcast by going to our page on anchor.fm and signing up for a monthly contribution. Walt, we appreciate you, buddy. We're super glad to have you here and grateful
1: for what you are doing to support our little show. If you would like to join Walt, then please click the link in the description of the episode, and we will thank you for your support as well.
0: We will continue to cover more 1D&D playtest content as it is released. Bear with us as we're going into the holiday season. I'm going to go back onto the road for the last few shows for Misty Mountain Gaming, and we will be celebrating the holidays as we do every year with our families. But, though we may have to wait a couple of weeks for it, we look forward to continuing to talk about our favorite hobby with you very soon in the next episode of twin inspiration. See you then! If you enjoyed this episode and wish to hear more like it, please consider supporting us on Patreon or on Anchor.fm. You can also support us by using code TWINS10. That's twins one whenever buying dice or other premium Dungeons & Dragons products from MistyMountainGaming.com. Or just by sharing us with your friends. If you'd like to join the conversation, please join our community Discord, or reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Links to all of that below the episode. And hey, in case you don't hear it anywhere else this week, we love you
1: guys. Till next time. Sorry, I think I have coyotes. It's, it's, it's a slightly less impactful version that still allows you to move That still doesn't... allows you
0: to have bonus actions
1: um, okay so here's something that you and I haven't talked about yet I don't remember where I read this but it was
0: someone again if you tell me what you're talking about I will maybe
1: be able to help more anytime that you cannot take actions you also cannot take bonus actions you can only take bonus actions if you have the ability to take an action Hmm. I mean, that makes sense, and I've always thought it was strange. Here it is: D and D Beyond, PHB Chapter Nine, Combat. On the section for bonus actions, we find the last sentence: "You can choose when to take a bonus action during your ch- turn, unless the bonus action's timing is specified, and anything that deprives you of your ability to take actions also prevents you from taking a bonus action." Damn. Okay. I've run that wrong for years. Uh, I, this is a relatively recent revelation for me, if it is true. Chapter 9 PHB. Let me look it up real quick. I'm in there now. Okay, here we go. Um, yep, that's there. One line in one book. Yep. That is the thing that I don't like about D&D, e Everything okay? I, I'm hearing some sounds. Inside or outside? So I had been hearing voices for a while and I just told myself, that's ah, it's probably nothing. This, this has been going on for a while. So I got up and apparently Puppy Dog Pals was playing on Marietta's computer while it was asleep with no one in the room while my whole family was asleep in the other room. And it was playing pretty loudly. Like I could hear it through all of my sound muffling stuff and two closed doors, but Everyone's on cold and flu medicine, so like, they just slept right through it. Nice. In lieu, in lieu, in lieu of doing, damn it! <laughs> Sorry, that's how. In right. lieu Is of doing, it... Louie, Dewey and Huey. Uh,
0: I'm I'm gonna have so many fewer, many fewer. So, I'm going to have fewer opinions on sorcer on sorcerer and warlock. It's definitely warlock.
1: Sit anchor.fm
0: oh sorry I see what you mean
1: um, uh, in case anyone else wants to join Walton, and want to make sure they know where to find him
0: anchor.fm
1: and I can splice that if I need to there we go yeah, you, yeah you'll need to um, because anchor.com is just a picture of an anchor that is literally the whole thing <laughs> I can't believe that they wasted that, <laughs> that URL hit the freaking stop button